0: I think this is more about coming together as a Jewish community, coming together as Jewish colleagues and seeing two things. One is seeing what kinds of legislation there is under consideration in the General Assembly that we can come together as a Jewish community to support and as a Jewish caucus to support.
1: Welcome to Center Maryland's The Lobby Pod. We're here uh, with an Annapolis favorite, a Knowings Mills favorite, a Baltimore County favorite. She is Senator Shelly Heddleman of the 11th District uh, out in Baltimore County, uh, as we like to say, as the city folks would say, out in Baltimore County. Uh, Senator Shelly Heddleman, welcome to the Center Maryland Pod.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Damian.
1: So you have made a a, a big bunch of news uh, in the last several days. Uh, You've created a new caucus for members of your General Assembly to be a part of. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the caucus and its origin story?
0: Sure. Uh, We just announced the creation of the first ever Maryland Jewish Legislative Caucus and 20 members launched it early in the week and we are inviting our colleagues to join us um, as associate members. And we really hope to come together to combat rising anti-Semitism in the Jewish community and and all communities. Um, We hope to work with other caucuses uh, in the General Assembly, the Legislative Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus, the Women's Caucus, um, advancing a civil rights agenda, religious freedom agenda, uh, we are going to work on security measures for organizations in the community. Uh, we are going to also work to educate the community. There's so much miseducation and misinformation about the Jewish community out there. And then we also hope to serve as a liaison with our local and statewide and national organizations that serve the Jewish community and beyond. So believe it or not, the idea for the caucus is, um, originated many, many months ago. And I'd started talking to colleagues about what they thought of it and started talking to leadership about it. And people generally thought it was a good idea. And then I am sorry to say after October 7th, there was unanimity in advancing the idea. So we worked on the concept over the past couple of months and um, we're working on the organizational structure now. And we hope to be active uh, this 2024 session.
1: Now, I'm going to come at you with a question that makes me sound like a little bit of an old timer. But, you know, I come from a Maryland politics uh, like you do that that had Marvin Mandel as the speaker of the House and had uh, was governor and had U.S. Senator Ben Cardin. He, too, was also speaker of the House. Talk to me about what you think those folks how they would react to this uh because if in the old days if you say who was who was a marvin mandel's caucus or ben cardin's caucus it would have been everybody and uh the idea that you know there there might have been so much sentiment maybe swept under the rug or things that uh the community took for granted or just you know it's it seems like almost, I don't want to say a step back, but it seems like it, it seems like something that you would have never imagined you'd have to do. Why don't we put it that way? And, and th- I'd love to hear more about those personal feelings you had to 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 sort of c- correct that.
0: So you're absolutely right. I mean, we are very blessed in this state to have had a number of leaders over many, many years who have been who've come from the Jewish community and have had, you know, no Issues, they don't hide, they didn't hide their roots, right? Yeah, right. Steinberg, you have Ben Carden, Marvin Mandel, you certainly you have Barbara Hoffman, right, from Baltimore City, who Thank was you. leader yeah. of budget and tax, and Paula Hollinger, who was, you know, healthcare leader par excellence. So you're absolutely right. We've had no shortage of uh, elected officials who've been Jewish and who have, you know, deep, deep roots in the Jewish community. I think this is more about coming together as a Jewish community, coming together as Jewish colleagues, and seeing two things. One is seeing what kinds of legislation there is under consideration in the General Assembly that we can come together as a Jewish community to support and as a Jewish caucus to support. There there were a number of times last year that I sort of looked around and thought, wow, I'd really like to get in a room with my Jewish colleagues and see what they think about this issue and there's not going to be consensus on everything, right? The Black That's Caucus. Right. Certainly happen.
1: not in the Jewish community, right? Right. <laughs> right?
0: The adage, the you know, would say. right? Three Jews, six opinions. That is true. <laughs> there's definitely some truth to that. So but we don't have to have unanimity. We don't have to have a consensus on every issue. And the Black Caucus does it. The Women's Caucus doesn't. So I don't know that we we don't have to either. But there were a number of times where I thought, you know, it would be really good to kind of sit in a room and hash some of these issues out before we have to consider them on the floor of the Senate. So that sort of started it for me. And then looking around and seeing what's happening in the world and what's happening in, in our communities and wanting at times to have to be able to develop a response to those activities or issues or actions that are happening on the ground as a group um, was meaningful to me. Now, I live around the corner from a number of synagogues, actually, in all directions from where I live. And, you know, Baltimore Hebrew congregation down the street had up big posters, bring them home now, and faces of children, faces of adults who were kidnapped on October 7th and taken into Gaza these are innocent people they are they have nothing to do with the politics of the middle east other than the fact that they live in israel and twice now those posters have been slashed and vandalized like i you can have disagreements about the politics in the middle east and i can understand i don't agree with it but i can you know can understand um People being upset. I, I don't understand van, vandalism. I want to be clear about that. But to destroy posters of hostages wherever they would be, you know, held. I just don't understand it. Yeah, Other could you imagine? That-
1: could you imagine during the Iranian hostage crisis or any of those where people will be clipping the yellow ribbons oh. around trees or something? I mean, it no. just is
0: no. So I can't understand that. Any. More than pure unadulterated anti-Semitism. So I find it really disturbing. And look, I know you had Meredith Weisel on from ADL, and she's a you know colleague and I have a friend, and I've worked with her over many years. And it is alarming the rise in hate crimes, not just in the Jewish community, I will say in the Muslim community, in you know, lots of minority communities, but especially since October 7th, right? So I think that the Maryland Jewish Legislative Caucus will give us an opportunity to come together as a group to educate people and to speak out when there are issues in the community that we want to weigh in on. And I want to be clear, it's not just Jewish legislators, right? We want to, and and many of my colleagues, we've reached out to non-Jewish legislators and invited them to join, and they are joining. So I'm really happy that, as a community in Annapolis, I think we'll have a you know a great group of people to learn and to stand with us.
1: Well, we had uh, you mentioned Meredith. We had uh, in our in our firm, and the creator of Center Maryland was really Howard Libbit, who's now the head of the Baltimore Jewish Council. So I, I don't think I have to ask for permission to say. Uh, if you need a small-time media partner, we are here for you. We got your back. Let us know anytime we can help you with the Jewish co- Legislative Caucus.
0: Thank you. And I will say, Howard and Sarah at the BJC have been unbelievable. Um, they've just been so, so helpful over the past many months. Um, I mean, there was a point there where I was talking to them literally every day. So There were a
1: bunch of universities and hospitals that were trying to respond and I don't think they were quite hitting the mark. And and my younger brother who works at Mercy Hospital for Sister Helen Amos, see, he said, We all have Howard Libit as this resource. <laughs> like all right. you gotta do is pick up the phone. <laughs> you know, he's they on, would have gotten that. it right. They would have got it right.
0: Yep. Hey, listen,
1: you 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 mentioned uh, two people very near and dear to me. Because when I started out in the legislature as a young person, they made me feel like uh, a real person. They made me feel like I could be somebody, and that is uh, Senator Barbara Hoffman and Senator Paula Hollinger, both chair persons uh, at the same time, actually. Yep, um, and uh, I just love to hear what it was like being a young politico uh, when you were coming up and, and knowing those people were, were at the center of the of your world.
0: They were amazing role models for me, really. I mean, I was in my young 20s, and I worked for the BJC back then. I worked for the right. Baltimore Jewish Council. It was really my first Annapolis experience way back in 1990, 91, 92, around there. Um, I was a government relations person from the Baltimore Jewish Council, and I was tasked with lobbying in Annapolis. And I had come from working on Capitol Hill, actually, for then Congressman Ben Cardin. Right. Um, Wanted to get more grassroots. uh, Went to work for the Baltimore Jewish Council and worked closely with both Paula and Barbara on issues of importance to the Jewish community and learned about Annapolis, met a ton of people. Um, That actually helped me many, many years later when I first ran. Um, And that was my first experience in Annapolis. Um, They were wonderful. I mean, the dedication that they had both to representing their constituents and the expertise that each had, you know, there was nobody really who came close probably to Barbara in terms of her handle on state budget matters, right? She was an incredible forceful leader. Um same thing with Paula in terms of education. I mean, sorry, in terms of healthcare. Um they both, if you remember back then, I mean, that was the first referendum on choice. Um that was a really rough time right. for them. Um and yet, you know, it prevailed and it was really important and in enshrining into our law protections on reproductive choice.
1: More than we, more than people ever would have thought. A lot of people thought that might have been a superfluous exercise. I, I don't know. Maybe looking back, people thought that might have been a superfluous exercise with Roe being sort of locked into the, the legal canon. But how quickly that changed, and you know, Maryland's status uh, has been has been, as you said, forever enshrined as a result. Right. Talk to me about how you decided to get into the legislative business. Uh, you, as you said, from your your career, you kind of had a behind the scenes insider point of view for so long. How'd you make that step from being sort of a staff uh, principal to, to wanting to become an elected representative of uh, your district?
0: So it was always in the back of my mind. And many, many years ago, there was an opening in my area. And I thought about running and I sat down with a, a dear friend. I don't know if you remember Mike Davis, who- Of course,
1: my mentor, mine as well.
0: Day. Yeah.
1: That's the guy, that was the one to see. That was, was the, the one person.
0: <laughs> yep, I think I went to breakfast with him one morning and he looked at me and he said, Shelly, you are going to be gone every night. You got young kids right now. Is this what you want to be doing? And mm-hmm. I really thought about it. I talked to other people and I decided, nope, Not the right time in my life. And so I let the opportunity pass, knowing that, you know, sometimes those don't come back so soon. And I went on, I can't remember exactly what I was doing at that point in my career, but just decided it wasn't the right time. And then fast forward many years later, in 2014, I had been working for Senator Cardin um, as his political person. I had been on his political side staff since 2007. I ran his 12- uh, It's camp- a lot of
1: winning. That's a lot of winning, Senator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very fortunate. And was looking, I'd been with him for seven years. And it was like, I, I was starting to think about what next and was on the phone with a friend and started to talk about the 11th district race. And that was a time where uh, one of our colleagues was running for higher office and there was an opening. And- this was like in October, I think, of 14, which is kind of late, right, in in an election year. And there was only one person in the race. And I was like, wow, there's one person. Usually there's a, a whole lineup of people. And I just got off the phone. and I think I called my husband and I was like, you know, I'm going to really think about this. And I think two weeks later, I decided I was going to jump in with full force. And I think it was December 15th of 2013, that I got into the race, which is kind of late. And I had about a month because our financial filings, which right. we just passed yesterday or two days ago, uh were due. And you know, I didn't even have a bank account. <laughs> I had nothing, zero, and just scrambled and just put my nose to the ground grindstone and um just focused on. Trying to put together a serious, serious effort. It turns out other people ultimately got into the race. I think there were seven of us that first time, but I won and I haven't haven't looked back.
1: You were more put together than you gave yourself credit for, even in that district.
0: Well, I got there. <laughs> I got put together.
1: <laughs> now you you went to like Pikesville High School, you worked for Senator Cardin, the Baltimore Jewish Council. Uh, When you're running for public office, does all that stuff come back to life in a very real way, or are you able to sort of put out uh, your persona? I mean, how does that work in state and local politics? Do you feel like all those experiences kind of tied together, or were you able to do sort of a fresh slate and say, this is is who I am, this is what we're about at this time? Interested to know.
0: A little bit of both. And I want to add one. My first job out of college was working on Senator Barbara Mikulski's first Senate campaign. Wow. Yeah. So I really, I i started out with her. And 1986. Yes, 1986. exactly. Exactly. 1980. I graduated in 1986, um, came back home and went right to work on her campaign. Didn't really have any formal campaign experience. I mean, I'd knock doors and- Illinois for Paul Simon, Senator, you know, way back in the... It's a good 80s. one. And he was a good one. And, you know, I'd had experience with internships, et cetera, but this was my first campaign experience. So I really learned from the pros on that one I'll say. and then worked on Capitol Hill. So I'll answer that a couple of different ways. One, it is hard to get the staffer out of me. It's really hard to get the staffer out of me. Sometimes my husband will look at me and he'll like, he'll say, why are you doing this? Like, why are you doing this? Like, but we uh, I get it. <laughs> you know, we, we, um, we do not have enough resources in Annapolis for staff. It has gotten better. They, they, like two years ago, finally raised the pay for our staffers, but we are a lean, mean machine.
1: They still and want to pretend it's a 90 day thing, you know, right. it and right. it's just not for you all.
0: It's, it's not, it is a year round endeavor. And look, I am very, very fortunate. I spend 365 days doing this. I do not have another job. I do not. I have the luxury and I'm very grateful not to have, an, not to have to have another job. When I left my prior job with Senator Cardin, I said, if I get bored, or if I, you know, this is not enough for me to do, I'll I'll get another job. But I'm very fortunate that I don't need the second, you know, we don't need the second income for me to put food on the table. So my many of my colleagues have to have another job. And, you know, that forecloses the opportunity for many people to run for this office. Because it's really difficult to juggle. I mean, I have colleagues who have small children who have demanding day jobs and who are in the legislature. And honestly, I don't know how they do it. It is really tough. They are pulled in so many different directions. And I understand why a lot of people don't want to do that. It is really challenging. So I am very fortunate that I get to do this full time. And I will tell you, there is no boredom and there's no lack of work. We have, there's so many needs in the community and there are so many constituents who um, need responding to and need help with navigating state agencies, et cetera. So all the experiences that I have had in my professional life, working for some amazing, amazing people who, many of whom have been incredible role models to me, have certainly formed the foundation for who I am, how I run my office, how I expect our team to interact with the community and um and at the same time I'm my own person and so I'm there's there's not uh, a whole lot of pretense here. I kind of am who I am in the community and um people like it or they don't but that's who I am and uh and so I you know it's a little bit of both
1: well, let's give us a little scuttlebutt here. Pretend where you're. Our uh, this is how they works on ChatGPT. I'm learning. Pretend, <laughs> pretend you're in a conversation with Michael Davis at the Towson Diner tomorrow. <laughs> you're getting ready for that, and you want to tell him what your legislative agenda is uh, for now. The fourth county executive he's worked for. Um, at, Talk, and, and, and what it's like to, to work in the, the Senate with Senate President Bill Ferguson, because he wouldn't know because he he only got to deal with one Senate president named Mike right, Miller. Right. So talk to me about how you would talk about what you're doing this session and uh, what it's like to work uh, with the Senate leadership we have today.
0: So I really don't have anything to compare it to. Um, I, you know, I was in the House when President Mike Miller um finished up his long, long legacy there. And and when I came over, Senator Miller, President Miller was um, sitting in, you know, kind of the row in front of me, uh, which is so far, right? Because everybody's <laughs> so used to seeing this this um, force. Yeah, you got nature. to see the back
1: of his head, right?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, the, this force of nature from the dais. And um, so President Ferguson had been elected just before before I came on a year before. So I've only known the Senate under his leadership and experienced it personally. And I have to say he's a he's an amazing leader. He is really collaborative. He is available. He um, he'll tell you what he thinks, um, which I appreciate. And um, and he listens and he listens to a lot of different people. He has to juggle a lot. Um, but I think he has great judgment. He's he's just a really really solid leader, and so I appreciate that.
1: If you know, I would, if people ask me about Senator Ferguson, I say just go check out the new schools in Baltimore City, which were done in in partnership with the Stadium Authority. I think um, he put a whole piece of legislation together. I mean, those schools are amazing looking, and they are top tier, first in class buildings. And he made that happen from the, the Senate of Maryland as a former teacher. It's really, really remarkable to see. And I'm going to talk-
0: share some of that credit oh, with Maggie McIntosh too.
1: Right, right. Like,
0: she was chair of appropriations. I was on her committee cool. in the House and former teacher, our teacher, and and my committee chair, um, and and Speaker Adrian Jones. I mean, she was yeah. my committee chair. So I have, um, you know, Stephanie
1: Rawlings, Blake, you know, I think there's a whole band of people. And, you know, that's what Senator Ferguson always says to me when I lose a little little bit of hope about what's going on in politics. He said to a whole group of us at Mercy Hospital, he said, wait, do you see this new generation of leadership we have from the controller to the governor to the, you know, the new uh, people in the Senate and the House? it's a whole new ball game. And I, and I think people that have been around for a while are starting to realize how different and and positive this experience is.
0: Yes. What I have to, and I, you He's know, talking I, about you. Well, I'm biased, but uh, the class of 2014 has some great, great leadership. You know, the new chairman of the environment and transportation committee, Mark Corman, our comptroller, right. Learman, new majority leader, David Moon in the house. Um, great People I came in with Antonio Hayes and Corey McRae, who now are in the Senate. Michael Jackson from Southern Maryland, who was on Appropriations with with me. Um, so we we have a, yeah, class of really, fourteen, class of fourteen. Look at us because there's some yeah, great folks in that in that class.
1: Now, what are you telling Mike about your legislative agenda this year?
0: So I. I have too many bills. Again, I try. <laughs> I try every year in April. And I say, are you one of
1: these, you're too. one of these uber competent people that so everybody comes to you uh, to help with their legislation. So you don't not only have your own burden, but I imagine you also have the burden of others foisting uh, their legislative priorities on you. So
0: I am, uh, I try and say no. I've been trying to say no more. Sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. And sometimes I just can't say no because the issue is, you know, it just needs fixing. I'll just give you an example. So one one of the bills I hadn't anticipated introducing this year, but folks came to me who advocate on hunger issues for children, right? Came to me and said, the Maryland Meals for Achievement program, this is the program that ensures that Hungry kids in school get fed and that we do it in an equitable way so that kids who need it don't feel like they're different or, um, it, you know, looked at strangely by their class. I, it. I get it. You know, you, it, if your stomach is grumbling in the classroom, you're not able to focus on the math that's on the board or the book that's in front of you. So letting kids get their breakfast, grab and go. And letting them have their food in as they're walking to classroom or as they're sitting in their classroom, rather than having some, you know, prescribed rules that say you have to come and eat it in this room before you go. Just giving them some. Right, your breakfast.
1: family makes this much money, so you have to have breakfast over here at this time, yeah, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and just giving the school systems a, a more flexibility to be able to feed kids. So that was one I hadn't exactly anticipated. And then I'm coming back with some criminal justice issues that I am still plugging away with um, in the legislature. One has to do with uh, reforming our geriatric and medical parole system. Um, When you have consensus from the Department of Corrections and the Parole Commission and advocates, I think that should make people really focus on this bill and when you have the head of the parole commission, David Blumberg, who I've gotten to know over the past couple of years and who's been in that role for many, many years and seen a ton, when he says the system is broken and needs fixing, like we need to fix it. So I'm coming back again with this year and hoping that we'll get some some traction on getting that out. Look, our correctional systems aren't focused and nor should they be necessarily on treating people who are ill. But we know, unfortunately, that there are so many people who have long, long sentences in our behind bars. And as they age, as we all age, our medical issues, uh, you know, become more front and center and they don't have the capacity to be able to deal with them. So for people who have severe, severe medical issues, like on their deathbed, we need to have a different way for them to get the care they need and who pose no harm to the community. Of course. Makes total sense. And we also know that people age out of crime. And so that for people who are over 60, who have served at least, you know, a huge chunk of their sentence, they need to be able to go before the parole commission and have them take a look at them and see how they have, um, you know, been rehabilitated and pose no danger to the community and have the opportunity to come back into the community. And we know this from, I don't know if you know the Ungers, this was a group of people who there had been um, an error in the way that juries were getting instructions. And so many years ago, they, they had to release dozens and dozens of people because these mistakes had been made. And many of them had... Been in prison for many, many years, and we're older, and they've actually studied what has been, what's happened when they've come back into the community. Have they recidivated? Right? Have they committed more crimes and now are back in prison? And the answer is no. It's about two or three percent of people
1: mm.
0: have committed more crimes, but I mean, we're talking dozens and dozens of people, and there are many studies that demonstrate that people age out of crime. So if it's safe. If they've served a bunch of, I mean, a huge proportion of their sentence, then it just makes sense for safety reasons, for financial reasons, for them to be integrated back into the community or have the opportunity to come before a judge, make their case and, or sorry, the parole commission and be returned.
1: Well, you know, I'm a bumper sticker politician Mm -hmm. kind of person. I would say that's a very compassionate agenda for 2024. Uh, with, the food, with the meals for kids and then um, uh, prisoners, uh, inmates who have sort of uh, on their last several days are dealing with serious medical illnesses. Uh, that, that's looking out for people that not many other people are looking out for.
0: Well, we have some others. We ha- I have two, two gun bills I'm working on and a bill also to provide um, telehealth and he- telehealth training for nurses. I've done a lot of work on for sexual assault survivors and work on this amazing committee that's run out of the attorney general's office, the sexual assault and evidence funding and policy committee. Wow. And we um it's really been an you know a, a really fantastic group of people that I've done work with over the years. And we know, unfortunately, that we don't have enough hospitals that have forensic nurse examiners that wow. And do the kind of exams that people who are raped need. So, if you go to a hospital, you mentioned Mercy. Mercy is the 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 site in Baltimore City where, if you're raped, you should go to. They have trained forensic nurse examiners. They have they know what they're doing there, right? In Baltimore County, it's GBMC. But some of our counties don't have rape crisis centers. And if you go to a hospital, you might, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but they might say sorry, can't help you right now. You need to go down, you know, you need to go 30 minutes down the road to another hospital. And that is not providing healthcare that people need, right? And so people have been through probably the most traumatic experience in their lives and go, first of all, it's hard enough to reach out for help and, and to reveal something so intimate and personal and horrific. And second of all, then, to have to deal with barriers that are up we need to do a better job of getting resources into places that are needed to be able to serve the people who are most. Yeah, needed. It seems
1: like we've voiced so many responsibilities on the hospital that yeah. this would be chief among them.
0: Yeah. So what we want to do is create a pilot program. It's it's actually being done in Pennsylvania where there are national experts out there. What we know uh, via COVID is that we can provide healthcare and other things Um uh, virtually, right? So you could have somebody who, a patient who comes in, who is with a nurse, who then gets, you know, a a monitor and who gets an expert from wherever, you know, could be in Utah and who is walking that nurse through the exam while the patient is there and who is, has the expertise and is guiding um, a professional in conducting an exam. So, we think it's, ex- you know, exciting possibility. We know it's so challenging today finding nurses at all and then finding nurses who have this particular expertise. It's just a way of um, bringing an expertise elsewhere into Maryland.
1: Senator Shelley Hedelman, thank you so much for joining us on The Lobby today.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate I it.
1: promised you 30 minutes and I went way over like a terrible staff guy like I was once.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Is
1: there anything uh, that you want to get out there to this uh, august audience of uh, policymakers? We got a lot of young people that listen to this thing too. It's pretty remarkable. So I love hearing them. I love having them hear your origin story because I think it gives them a lot of hope that they too could become a great leader as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to mention two other things if I can. Um, One is we have started... A great group uh, called the Baltimore County Democratic Women. Um, we recently looked around and realized—well, of course we knew this—but there are no women on the Baltimore County Council. How oh, are in 2020? How
1: long too? I and mean, it's been
0: have not had any. You know, don't have any women. There's never been a woman county executive in Baltimore. God county. God bless
1: all those councilmen. But the, the the shot of the seven councilmen every year sitting yeah. and standing—it's just—it's—it's it's too yeah. much. I'm afraid.
0: So it's time we're getting organized as as women. We have a really diverse group of people from all parts of the county, all ages. Uh, I mean, it's really been great. We've just started. So we've just started getting folks involved in issues, not really on the political side yet, but that's very exciting and definitely a place for people to join. Um, And the second thing I'm going to mention is we have heard, we haven't talked about it, but I'm on the budget and tax committee where I'm thrilled to be and We have some challenging fiscal times ahead, right? We have a structural deficit. We have really important obligations in our blueprint for um, education and making our Maryland schools world-class, our Climate Solutions Now Act. Maryland is at the forefront of trying to rein in greenhouse gases, of making conversions to clean energy, wind, solar, et cetera. And- we just got the budget this week. Um, we're going to need to make some really, really tough choices. So I will, I will say here for the first time publicly, and it'll, we'll announce it uh, later in the week that I'm going to be the Senate sponsor of a what's what we're calling the Fair Funding Bill, and it has a large coalition of people, and it's looking at some tax reform, and it's looking at some uh, both in terms of personal, but also in terms of business. And making sure that um, the corporations are paying their fair share and making sure that little guys, the small businesses that, you know, make the heart and soul of our economy grow are um, are protected and have an even playing field on which to compete. So anybody who's making under $250,000 is actually is not going to experience any any increase, but we need to make sure that when we have a tax system that's upside down where the wealthiest one percent of the community is paying less than the lowest percent, that's that's backwards. So we're gonna yeah, work if you
1: think if you think about a tax code as something that's managed over 30 years or a hundred years and you think about the people that are in the room the most uh from big business over those 30 years, you know, things can get imbalanced. Right. Senator Shelley Heddleman, thank you so much for joining us on The Lobby, showing us the future, but also uh, giving us a little bit of a connection to our past. It was really fantastic to have you.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Senator.